The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 2nd, 2021. We hosted a Twitter space during the final two hours of the Major League Baseball trade deadline on Friday. Uh, So we haven't had a chance to discuss the Craig Kimbrell trade. It came at a big cost with Nick Magical and Cody Hoyer heading to the north side. But the White Sox needed to fortify their bullpen. And after an inconsistent performance from the bullpen for 100 games, Rick Hahn decided that he wanted Kimbrell and Liam Hendricks to close out games. Does this trade turn the tide in the American League to the White Sox favor? We'll discuss that point. Plus, Sebi Zavala's special night, Cleveland hitting Jose Abreu with pitches, recap the action down in the minor league, preview the upcoming series against Kansas City, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. There's a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. The White Sox are 62-44 and and up nine games on Cleveland in the American League Central, To recap, the entire series against Cleveland would be like an hour-long episode itself because so much Mm -hmm. happened over the weekend. But let's start with Craig Kimbrell. We did see Craig Kimbrell pitch in back-to-back days for the White Sox. What do you think about the new high-profile White Sox reliever? I like everything about it so far. He makes innings seem pretty simple. Um, My impression of him from afar was that, especially I think when he was struggling in his first year with the Cubs and, and took a while to come back from his extended, um, I guess, break or the, the slow start that he had to the season because he took so long to sign. I was uh, you know, kind of uh, anticipating somebody who labored a bit or, you know, took a long time between pitches and was just really hard to watch. Kind of, you know, uh, not Alex Colomay in terms of swing and miss because obviously his numbers speak for himself, but just the amount of time he took between pitches and and, and uh, making you know, innings feel a bit like work, but no, not really. <laughs> it's pretty much straightforward. I think you know, Ryan Tapero was the guy. I, I think there's a nice study <laughs> in contrast between the two of just 
having immediate success and immediate failures. And uh, Tapera had you know failures on consecutive days, and Kimbrel made everything look very simple. So I think when you look at the acquisition cost and the plans that the White Sox have for both, I think you'd rather have uh, Kimbrel being the one that makes everything look simple. <laughs> I think if he had the start Tapera did, you might start worrying a little bit about what uh, the Cubs were dealing. But for the time being, yeah, just I think he's so far showing what the White Sox had in mind. Yeah, that's why Tapera, it only cost Bailey Horn to acquire him. And Kimbrel, it required Nick Magical and Cody Hoyer. And when it comes to Kimbrel being added to the White Sox, again, we, we didn't have an emergency podcast because I was going to save it for this episode as it happened on Friday and we were on Twitter space reacting live. And so many of you guys joined that Twitter space. So thank you so much for doing so. And getting a chance to see Kimbrel in back-to-back days, he threw two innings. They were both scoreless and hitless. He didn't walk anyone. He struck out two. And the way that Sunday's game went, Kimbrel pitches a scoreless eighth. Liam Hendricks comes in, closes it up, and you can dream. You can definitely dream as a White Sox fan. Man, get them the lead into the eighth inning with these two guys in the postseason, and the White Sox are going to win some playoff games. So, Jim, with the addition of Craig Kimbrell, does this trade turn the tide in the American League to the White Sox favor? I wouldn't say to the White Sox favor. I think it shores them up. I think it prevents them from having any critical flaws that make them seem like easy pickings, which I think, you know, when they had uh, um, you know, Cody Hoyer and uh, Uriel Ryan Burr, they were turning to for high leverage situations in front of uh yeah, Hendricks as the right-handed reliever who wasn't Michael Kopech. And uh, I think that was easier to say like, okay, we just need to uh, you know, put up a crooked number against a starter and they're going to have a hard time competing in the late innings. Um, but now I think with Kimbrell there, with Hendricks there, and then hopefully, you know, Kopech maybe even being stretched out, assuming that the Cleveland outing was an aberration. It, it, it makes them tough one through nine, at least pitching wise. I think where they're going to, turn uh, or change minds and become more of like a well-rounded threat, I think will be when Eloy Jimenez can be completely uh, reintegrated into the lineup and not have this, this groin concern that's currently uh, you know, holding him out of the lineup. Uh, you know, whether it's that, whether it's something else that surfaces, you know, I think he just needs to be in the lineup for you know, a good week or two to see what he delivers and what he can be counted upon because I think the results we've seen so far kind of cover the spectrum. Uh, and then with Luis Robert, what he can offer, and Yasmani Grandal, what he can offer. Uh, right now, I think everybody's pretty optimistic about how they'll ultimately be able to turn, uh, or I guess, like, round into form over the last two months of the season. But uh, I think until I see what they kind of look like two to three weeks into them being active again, I'm kind of holding off on them being like a... Uh, a well-rounded threat. I think the lineup has been held in check by too many questionable pitchers as of late, uh, whether it's Cal Quantrill or Chris Bubich or, you know, Mike Miner, uh, Brad Keller, like last week or so, I think shows that they still have some growth to do offensively. Well, I, on that topic real quick, that's on Tim Anderson, Yohan Mikata and Jose Abreu. Yep. They're, they're, they're still slumping. It is August and I did tweet this out. Uh, Abreu becomes like Zeus, and he just his career numbers in the month of August are incredible, and I am hopeful that continues. 
But in the last 15 games, Yohan Makata has struck out 21 times to one walk. Mm -hmm. Now, he's got four home runs, and he's got three doubles as well. So we're seeing some power from him uh, with seven extra base hits in the last 15 games. But boy, that's that's a tough pill to swallow. Uh, Tim Anderson is having a very difficult time pulling anything in the air. Uh, and he seems when he wants to hit a fly ball, he's more comfortable going to right field, and he just doesn't have that type of consistent power swing to go opposite field in that direction, much like Aloy Jimenez does. That's not really his game. Uh, so, yeah, when those three are not hitting very well, you are very reliant on everybody else in the lineup to pick it up. Uh, and we have seen that in the bottom part of the order. So I just wanted to touch on that because that is a good point on, well, why does this White Sox team – why are they not the favorite? And I think you can point out three of the core players who are still slumping during this season for X, Y, Z reasons. Uh, we'll get to Abreu in a moment because there's definitely something to talk about what happened during this past series against Cleveland. Um, but the return for the Chicago Cubs in trading Craig Kimbrell uh, included Cody Hoyer, who is immediately in their bullpen. And if he fixes his sinker issue, I still think he could be a high leverage reliever in the league. But Nick Magical, that surprised me, Jim, only because he was playing so well before the hamstring tear that I figured the White Sox were sold mm -hmm. on his ability to be the starting second baseman for the upcoming years. And with Cesar Hernandez having only a uh, contract option, a, a club option next year with no buyout. So they could have easily, they could easily walk away from Cesar Hernandez without having to pay him a dime after this season that even when they acquired Hernandez, I still figured Nick magical is the 2022 starting second baseman for the white Sox. Mm -hmm. That's obviously not the case. He's going to the Cubs Cubs fans are going to love Nick Magical for the way that he plays. He's like Darwin Barney, but he can actually hit. But the impact of losing Nick Magical for the White Sox, how big of an impact do you think it's going to be? I don't think it's going to be that big of an impact. I mean, based on what he'd showed before he got injured, like there is an impact in the lineup just because he could hit righties as well as lefties. His defense was getting a little bit better. His base running was getting a little bit better. Not a stolen base threat, but at least, you know, staying out of the, the real dumb stuff that I think drew a lot of people's ire. But I think it might just be the hamstring injury, just, you know, not knowing what exactly that's going to do to his profile. Like, you know, whether that saps his power, whether that saps his speed even further to where he's not like plus even, you know, running the bases. And then if you have Magical who does not have plus speed, um, you know, what do you have? Um, you have a high average guy. You, you maybe have like Luis Arise, you know, who's, good who's a useful player but just not a transcendent uh lineup addition you know somebody you can uh you know figure out how to uh compensate for you know his absence and i think cesar hernandez being a second baseman being an everyday second baseman the way leary garcia was not and having on base skills from the left side of the plate against right hand pitching having more power like i think it balances out what madrigal offered and what hernandez offers uh in his current form and what magical had showed before he got hurt. Uh, and it's funny. You mentioned how Cubs fans are going to react. Like I have the kind of, I was talking to my friend, Randy, who is a, a Cubs fan. I enjoy talking to like, we could just have good baseball discussions uh, about our teams. And we were talking about magical and having you know, the, the Cubs having traded Baez. 
And I can see Cubs fans not liking Madrigal because if he's seen as the Baez replacement, I can see him being very unsatisfying because when you look at their games, they're pretty much polar opposites, or at least they don't overlap at all when it comes to what they offer. Like Baez is all power and really loud tools and a great feel for the game. Whereas Magical has bat to ball abilities and really no feel for the game, or he's really taking a long time to uh, you know, hone his instincts to the speed of a major league game. But he doesn't really, it, it's been a painful process watching him like understand like the speed of the game and, and the speed with which he has to make plays and make decisions. So if they're looking at, at Magical as like just a lineup fixture, then I think he'll be fine. But if they look at him as somebody who takes like buys his spot in the infield, then I can see him being disappointing the way that Tyler Flowers was disappointing for people who wanted him to be A.J. Pierzynski. <laughs> they used to not have similar games. They really didn't uh, overlap or resemble each other. And given that uh, you know Pierzynski is more watchable, more highlight fodder, like you know, Flowers is just naturally going to disappoint. So it's going to be uh, fascinating to watch just him across town because I can see him being, you know, if he plays the way he did like in the last week before he got hurt, I can see him being very... Uh, just a lot of fun, a very uh, satisfactory player to watch for the Cubs just because he puts the ball in play and makes things happen. If the defense improves the way it was, then he's not going to create headaches in the field. So I can see him being fun, but I just wonder, you know, given how much thing had to go right in order for him to be an above average player, uh, you know, maybe borderline all-star, I just wonder if the hamstring injury is just too big a risk. And the White Sox say like, well, we, we're not subtracting from this year's wins and we're adding wins to this t- team and uh, we can add the most wins this way. Just gaining the wins in 2021 might be enough to offset whatever wins they lose from Magical in 2022. When you look at the excitement, enthusiasm, attendance boost, ratings boost, all the revenue that comes with it and, and the spending power that that generates. I'm, I slightly disagree with the, the notion that Cubs fans are going to be disappointed Nick Magical because the whole Javi Baez angle is going to be more on Nico Horner, who is going to be playing shortstop for the Cubs in the future. I think it'll be more to that end. or And whoever replaces Anthony Rizzo at first base, and I don't think anyone's expecting Patrick Wisdom uh, to fully replace Chris Bryant. But I, I get the sense that they're going to like Nick Magical. They, they love Darwin Barney. They love Darwin Barney. And Nick Magical, like I mentioned, is just like Darwin Barney, but he hits. So I think we're going to see thousands of Magical Cubs jerseys sold next year. Well, I, do they love Darwin Barney the way I love Connor Gillespie? Uh, like somebody who is fun in bad times? <laughs> Maybe. Well, I mean, it's going to be bad times for the Cubs. Yeah. It, it just is. There's no way around that for the Chicago Cubs in the uh, the upcoming years. But if they are going to be rebuilding or reloading or whatever excuse that they're going to use to explain what Cubs fans are going to see in 2022, 2023, and 2024, I think Cubs fans that actually do attend games will latch on to Nick Magical. And we're going to hear about it, about how well he does all the time and there even might be during their broadcast, thanks White Sox, in the same way that Jason Benetti says, says it uh, when Eloy Jimenez mm-hmm. has a big moment. 
But make no mistake, Eloy Jimenez is going to have far greater impact <laughs> than Nick Magical. And it just surprises me. This isn't a gut punch. I don't think it was the wrong decision. It just surprised me that the White Sox were willing to move on from somebody that they invested in. They invested a high draft pick in Nick Magical. And they must like Cesar Hernandez as an option, not just for the rest of this season, but Rick Hahn mentioned during his press conference that the acquisitions of both Kimbrell and Hernandez were not just for 2021. So to pivot back to Kimbrell, he does have a $16 million contract option, a club option after this season, Jim. We talked about this on Twitter, on the Twitter space on Friday, but after sleeping on a couple of nights, do you think the White Sox are going to pick up that $16 million option on Kimbrell after the season? If he's this good, uh, the way he's been with the Cubs and carries that through the rest of the season and looks like an asset in the postseason, I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, I don't maybe think they might carry both his salary and Hendrick's salary in the bullpen because that's just really one expensive bullpen and might be diminishing returns to having both. But I think, you know, you can have a case where uh Kimbrell on a one-year $16 million deal would have some appeal to another team, like another team that has an injury and doesn't want to overinvest in a closer but really needs one for this year. Uh, whether it's an exchange for like a high salary for a high salary of blocked players or players aging out or players in their last year, it seems like uh, just letting him go for nothing when he's basically getting the qualifying offer. I guess the way I look at it is if you were a free agent – and uh, you know, hitting the market for the first time, and w- uh, would you extend the qualifying offer? I think that'd be an easy mm-hmm. yes if he gets to the end of his season without any issues. So I think that's how I'm looking at it. Yeah, I think if he was a free agent, he's beating Hendricks three-year, $54 million contract, right? Yeah. You know, whether yeah. they'll keep him on the payroll, it's a different question. I-, I think it depends on just how many other interesting options – uh, avail themselves to the White Sox between now and then. Oh, that's that, okay. So that's intriguing. So you're saying that they could pick up the option, and if somebody called during the 2000 during the off season before the 2022 season started, there could be the possibility the White Sox trading Kimbrel to help address their 2022 roster in different ways. See, that's yeah. that's intriguing. Hmm. Hmm. Well. I hope that plants a seed for some of our listeners when it comes to the off-season plan project after the 2021 season uh, to help fill the time in November before the CBA possibly expires in December 1st and we have a lockout. But yeah, keep that in mind. I, I find that to be intriguing. So that's Craig Kimbrell. That's the big news for the White Sox and so far so good. Uh, he's made a great first impression. Let's talk about Sevi Zavala. Maybe one of the most unlikely offensive performances I have ever seen. When he hit the first home run to dead center field, I was happy for him. Sevi Zavala has a major league home run because it was pretty clear Friday night being in attendance and the bat is just slipping out of his hands and he's throwing the bat at pitches and just looks all out of sorts that, yeah, Sevi is here for his defensive abilities. If he's going to have stain power in the major leagues, it's because he can block well and he frames well and he helps out the pitchers in that way. He's not going to be much of a major league hitter. Then he hits the grand slam. And it's just like it. That's unbelievable. 
and I'm sitting on our on my on our rooftop, and I got the game going on on my tablet, Jim. And I hear Jason Benetti introduce Sebi Savali. He's got two home runs tonight. And because I'm on a delay, I see fireworks from the stadium. <laughs> so I knew Savala hit his third home run before I saw it on the tablet. And we have a coffee mug on someone else that's had a three home run uh, game. Is Sebi mm-hmm. Zavala's three run home, three homer game the most unlikely three homer game for any White Sox hitter ever? I think so when it comes to major league context, like uh, just based on what we know, what we've known from his recent history, what we've known he looks like. You know, there have been some other ones when it comes to the White Sox, like Pat Seary hitting four homers in like 19, in the 1940s. And, you know, he was kind of just a journeyman slugger, but, you know, fine like he was just more uh you know kind of under you know unremarkable like carl reynolds in 1930 like he was a slugger or had a slugging profile um yeah there have been some i'm looking up right now tommy mccraw he's another one who i don't know a whole lot about um yeah he topped out 11 homers so that's a surprising one so i think uh you know given that zavala has a history of hitting homers in the minors that might be one thing that separates him from a mccraw but just based on what we saw the day before I think that's what's most shocking is that the day before he goes 0 for 3 with two, uh, three strikeouts and two of those strikeouts, he flung the bat in the foul territory down the third base uh, side. He just was completely way out in front of the slider. Second time he struck out doing that, like he like was cursing to himself. You know, like basically like, yeah, looked like he was trying not to punch himself for doing that. You look completely overmatched out of sorts. And, and that's when you think like, oh, I never want to see this guy come to the plate again. Comes up to the plate last time, shows bunt a couple times, and then Karinczyk throws uh, pitches out of the zone, and uh, Zavala doesn't even end up having to complete his own plate appearance because Collins steps in. But that's kind of where <laughs> he was. Uh, his last at bat before the three homers was everybody being glad he had an opportunity to bunt and make himself useful, and people being glad that Zach Collins finished his plate appearance. So given that context before three homers, I think that's what I would be hard-pressed uh, you know, I imagine I'll have to look at the play-by-play data if it's available for like 1930 <laughs> to see what, what the guy looked like the day before. But that's what makes it shocking. It's like, um, yeah, it's like imagine like uh, if you're like an introductory to guitar class and you're watching one guy struggle to like pair together G and D chords without dropping his pick and he's just like cursing to himself and not getting it. And then he comes back next week, plays Cliffs of Dover flawlessly, <laughs> <laughs> note for note. <laughs> Just rips it off, you know, just the entire thing, uh, and then, you know, walks away, comes back the next day, can't play chords. <laughs> it's kind of, that's what it looked like to me. Just, you know, even, you know, the, the Sunday, I mean, it was his third start in a row, uh, day game after a night game, which I think is telling. But he started and he looked the same, you know, kind of swinging and missing and, and uh, rolling stuff over the left side. And if he got a hold of something, it was way out in front of it. So, that's what makes it shocking to me is just the, the surrounding context being what we thought Zavala was and what was in between was somebody he's never resembled in the high minors, much less the pros. I don't know what you do with that. This goes into the folklore of White Sox history, though, right? We're going to remember the Sebi Zavala game, even though they lost. And that's also yeah. a good debate. Is this the best hitting performance that... I can remember in a losing effort. I mean, you have Tadahito Gucci in 2006 against Houston hitting the grand slam and then a three run Homer. 
uh, in the next inning, or did I have those flipped around? Did he hit the three-run homer first and then the grand slam? I believe it was three-run homer, then grand slam. Yeah. Those those two are right up there for amazing offensive performances, but the White Sox lost. Tadahito Gucci against Houston in 2006, and Sevi Zavala Saturday night against Cleveland. I can't think of any. Yeah, others. Frank Thomas had a three homer game and a loss as well. Oh wow, okay. But I but I don't remember that one myself because I was playing baseball back then, so I don't watch a whole lot of games in 1996. Got it. Oh, but yeah, 96 yeah, is that, always that, fuzzy for me. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. Those are some dark teams. Like, not a lot of guys to root for those after, after the strike and before the. It was just, it was a mess. Like, they got a lot of low character guys around there. Uh, it was a weird time for acquisitions. But yeah, it was. Uh, you know, that was a case too where just like maybe Frank Thomas, but Aguchi. I just remember. You know, that stands out just because he tied the game. It was Sunday night baseball. Uh, yeah, just the, the coming off the 2005 season, White Sox Astros again. That's, I think, what made it, um, gave it some extra oomph. I I remember that night because I was in college in Oshkosh. I had just came from the college radio station because I had, we were mandatory doing uh, shifts as far as playing music. Like I couldn't just do sports stuff. I, I had to fill in uh, being a disc jockey uh, for an hour. I came back from the radio station and, and my roommate said, hey, Aguchi just hit a three-run homer, but they're still losing by a lot. And uh, I'm up in my room upstairs, and uh, <laughs> he comes up the stairs, and he knocks on my door. He's like, hey, man, you really should come watch this. The White Sox have the bases loaded. So I come downstairs, and yeah, I saw Aguchi's grand slam. and just like insane, like just kind of somewhat losing my mind. And not as much as I did the previous year at our house uh, as I smashed our chandelier in excitement when Joe Creedy hit a home run during the 2005 <laughs> World Series. But I remember vividly Iguchi's Grand Slam and how the game was tied and being a little disappointed that the White Sox lost that game. But it was cool to see Iguchi have that type of moment. And we still remember that performance 15 years later. And I've got a feeling 15 years down the road when Ted Mulvey destroys us again in a uh, Saturday sporkle like he did with the second baseman since 1990. Ted, if you're listening, that was evil. That was an evil sporkle. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, 15 years later, I think we're still going to remember. You remember Sebi Zavala and we'll joke be like, yeah, he wasn't a very good hitting catcher. But boy, he had that three home run game and like 100,000 people are going to say, yes, I was in attendance when Sebi Zavala hit three home runs. But it was cool that he had it in front of a, a charged crowd. Yeah. I think that's the thing that unites them in both Aguchi and Zavala is having a sellout, a near sellout crowd there for it and not seeing it coming at all. Yeah. A great moment. I'm happy for Sebi Zavala. The, you mentioned Zavala starting each of these games over the weekend, and he has started six of the last eight games for the White Sox at Catcher Gym. So let me pose this question to you. Maybe it's a little early still, but Yasmani Grandal's jogging, and he might be returning in a couple of weeks. Once Grandal is healthy, Who's the primary catcher before September call-ups? Collins or Zavala? It seems like Zavala. Like, there's, there was no reason to start him as much as they did before the three-homer game, and I think that only bolsters it. 
So that would seem like at least he's shown the ability to draw a walk here and there. He's, he's shown the ability to, to hammer a mistake. So maybe that's enough to keep him back there, you know, just for his receiving abilities and game calling abilities. The funny thing too, is that like he uh, got the starts day game after night game and the White Sox didn't pitch all that well in the night game. Like, you know, Kopech got lit up. Um, you know, there's some defense too behind him, but like Heichel gave up three homers. Like there wasn't, it's not like the staff came off like an impeccably called game and, and some mastery on, on the pitching catching side. It was just, it was a slobber knocker of a game. And, uh, Zavala contributed to that offensively, but not, you know, I guess it would look like, uh, the score on both sides and the catching line would look like something Zach Collins might do. <laughs> he might be behind the plate in a game where the White Sox gave up 12 runs and he might've been a reason why the White Sox scored 11 runs. It was Zavala instead. So to see him come back the next day and start and, you know, start and catch a, uh, Reynaldo Lopez, Jimmy Lambert, uh, hybrid start. um, that seemed to speak to the amount of comfort they have with him calling games or at least receiving games and helping a pitcher out. So it would be funny just because we had to hear so, so much over the course of the, you know, the, the preseason, you know, the spring training and then going into April with the Rodon no hitter about how Zach Collins is finally a catcher. And if Zach Collins gets usurped by Sebi Zavala, uh, is he a catcher? Like, <laughs> does that reopen or, or does that jeopardize the uh, their statement they'd been making before? I guess they could, their defense could be like, you know, what do you call um, the the person who finishes at the bottom of their class in medical school? Yeah. Doctor. <laughs> could be the same thing. Just like, well, he catches, so he's a catcher. But, you know, nothing more than that, so. Well, if he's not a catcher, I don't know why you keep him then for the 2022 roster, Jim. Because if you're like, well, he's your first yeah. base DH type, dude, Gavin Sheets is a better hitter than Zach Collins. That's that's Gavin Sheets. If you're looking for a left-handed first base DH type, you got that already in Gavin Sheets. And Collins does not hit better than Gavin Sheets. Collins may walk better than Gavin Sheets, but he doesn't have the same power threat as Gavin Sheets has displayed in his cup of coffee this season. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is maybe Collins is hurt. Oh. And so like, they're just, you know, it could be a case where, you know, he's not, you know, it's the difference between like, you know, hurt and injured. He's not injured. He's just hurt. And if Zavala is ready to go and seeing some rewards for playing consecutive games, like they may as well run with it just because they don't, maybe they don't want to uh, reopen a can of worms with your mean Mercedes coming back up. You know, who knows uh, what exactly is going on there. Um, but that's just another thought I had is sometimes when you have these weird playing time allocations, it's because they don't want to make a big deal about something, but something's a small deal. That's interesting. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. Because uh, if Collins is quote-unquote hurt, and it's time for Grandal to rejoin the White Sox, there you go. That's your move, right? Collins goes to the injured list. Grandal rejoins the team. Because uh, I, I do think after September 1st that Collins will Collins and Savala are going to be on the roster with Yasmani Grandal. I see the White Sox carrying three catchers just in case, uh, especially with uh, Grandal's mm -hmm. knee. I, I definitely do see that happening. Yeah, probably lots of you know in-game replacements if uh, you know, game's out of hand, like maybe Grandal catching seven innings when you have three catchers, you can freely swap. Right. So uh, Exactly. At some point, though, one of these two is going to have to be sent down unless 
Grandal hits a snag during his rehab, or the White Sox want him to have a 20-day rehab in the minor leagues, and Grandal has actually rejoined the White Sox sometime in September. It is it is interesting though that Savala is starting to he gets more of the starts in the past eight games than Zach Collins, and it is definitely something to to pay attention to because Lance Lynn gives Zavala a lot of love in those press conferences. So he's got one marquee starter in his corner. All right, before we get to the minor league report, the one last thing that I want to touch on uh, from this series against Cleveland is Cleveland hitting Jose Abreu with pitches Friday night, Jim being Mm -hmm. in attendance. I was legit upset when Karen check hit Jose Abreu in the head and watching that pitch over and over again from the broadcast, like, I don't know where he's aiming for. And it does help when Liam Hendricks spoke about the situation over the weekend, when Hendricks is saying that your best chance of attacking Jose Abreu, the hole in his swing are pitches up and in. And, I can understand that, but Karen check that was way, way off. And even though he showed instant Mm -hmm. remorse, I don't understand why that is the pitch that you're throwing, especially with the bases loaded. Like there's just too much risk there. Uh, Even if you hit him in the shoulder that, that brings in a run and you got a tight game going on and they already hit him before earlier in that game. And then on Sunday, the bases are loaded again and again. A different pitcher, Cal Quantrell, up and in, misses by a lot and nails Jose Abreu. And it took Jose Ramirez to approach Jose Abreu and they had a conversation and it got captured during the broadcast. I'm not sure what Ramirez is going to say to Abreu to calm him down. But this is ridiculous. And there are more games upcoming between these two teams. And there is that whole five games in four days series that the White Sox and Cleveland are going to be playing in late September. I'm a bit surprised the White Sox didn't throw at Cleveland. Tony La Russa made it pretty clear mm-hmm. on Friday and on Sunday he's sick of this crap. And yes, Good for you, Tony, because that's what I want to see White Sox managers to stand up for their player. This is a 180 from what he did in Minneapolis earlier this season with Yerba Mercedes. Uh, so if you want to know how Tony feels about Mercedes compared to Abreu, we're fa- we're, we, we found out this weekend. But Tony's in the right here. And mm-hmm. I know there are people across baseball on the national landscape, but especially Cleveland, that think that Tony is showing his red ass over the weekend. And obviously these weren't intentional pitches to hit Abreu. They may not be intentional, but Tim Anderson puts it best. Abreu's on the ground. Abreu is getting nailed. Mm -hmm. And this isn't like in the hip or the leg or the back. You are hitting him in some very dangerous areas of his body. He got hit in the head and he's on the ground. So I'm glad that Tony La Russa got upset. I'm glad that the benches got cleared. And I'm glad that he went to the umpire on Sunday and drew more attention to this. Because this is something that we're White Sox fans and everybody that covers the White Sox, we're going to have to pay attention to when these two teams hook up again. Because this seems to be a reoccurring occurrence uh, from Cleveland on how they're attacking Abreu. 
And it would be the worst thing if Abreu got hit by a pitch from a Cleveland pitcher and it knocked him out for many weeks. Yeah, I've I've written about this before because I'm kind of fascinated by, I guess, the etiquette and politics of retaliation. Um, you know, not I, I think the the you know retaliating for like a bat flip or whatever that, that's boring. But when it comes to like um, protecting players, because I think there is some nobility in purpose pitches where one of your guys is getting hit or like another team's uh, pitchers just can't execute what they're trying to execute. And they're putting players at risk. Like I'm thinking like when Carlos Quinton charged the mound against Zach Greinke because of their years of Greinke just throwing at Quinton and, and, and just punishing him inside when Greinke has impeccable control. It's just like, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by just uh, what's allowable and what's not and the strategies of it. And I remember back in 2011, uh, when I wrote about it because Ozzie Guillen really kind of checked out of the whole protecting his hitters thing. I think after the Sean Tracy incident blew up on him, uh, he became a lot less vocal and um, you know, willing to you know, order things or encourage his pitchers to do it. And so there is like a, a, a couple series against Cleveland where White Sox hitters just got punished. Um, Brent Lillibridge had his uh, finger broken. And then the year before, like Gordon Beckham got beat up on a pitch inside and Paul Konerko had to take some. And, and I remember that there was a pitcher named Josh Judy. Uh, and I looked up his baseball reference page right now. And he only appeared in 12 games in his major league career. They're all for Cleveland in 2011. And in over 14 innings, he hit four batters and all four of those batters were White Sox. And they're over like three and two thirds innings. The, the rest of his major league ledger and a lot of his minor league ledger that year didn't hit a batter. And it was just, you know, they knew what the plan was. Uh, they knew, uh, you know, what, how to get guys out, but they could not do it. They were, they were just, you know, they didn't have the talent to pitch inside effectively without, you know, endangering a hitter. And I remember being very mad at White Sox pitchers and, and, and Guillen for not standing up because he had Paul Canerco, who was usually pretty stoic on the field, but he was even just like, you know, holding his palms up, like, you know, what are you doing? Like, what do you, what do you think you're doing? Uh, you know, whatever you think you're doing, you can't do it. And incompetence is not a defense when it comes to, hitters, you know, being able to do their jobs and being healthy enough to do their jobs. So I was hoping that when it came to the seventh inning, like I I think Lopez is in a delicate state career wise where you don't really want to throw him into uh, extracurricular activities when he's doing well. Like, I think you just want him, you know, for the health of the pitching staff to try to be like his best possible self. So I, I wouldn't want him to be throwing at guys and adding base runners to his ledger, but I was kind of hoping that when the seventh inning rolled around, uh, Mercado came to the plate to lead it off and Bummer was warm. I kind of hoped that, you know, Lopez came up through behind a guy through, through behind Mercado, not hitting him, just throwing behind him, maybe like bouncing it behind his ankles just to trigger the warning, you know, just to, and if he got ejected, fine, because that's when, uh, you know, Bummer would come in anyway to face, uh, Mercado, but, uh, just to trigger the warning, just so, uh, a Cleveland pitcher who missed inside on a Brayu would be thrown out or likely thrown out. You know, maybe it's a case where just it was a curveball that got away. They might not do it, but just fastball, reckless with the fastball, they would do it. But uh, I think I would be a lot more unsatisfied at the White Sox loss, but seeing the game end with Brian Goodwin hitting walk-off homer and flipping the bats to the club level while staring into the Cleveland dugout, <laughs> I, I think that's the, uh, the idea of best revenge being living well. Uh, yeah. I think the White Sox live very well. They leave the weekend... Uh, with a, a lead, a game bigger than it was when it started. And I think that's really the goal. I think they, you know, just like with Lucas Giolito and Josh Donaldson not wanting to get dragged down by last place team, I think it's the same thing here where 
as satisfying as it would be to throw at Jose Ramirez or Fran Mel Reyes or whoever to get retaliation, I think right now, the state of the season, the state of certain pitchers, that you just want them to get out, so you want them to win the game, and you want them to, uh, when that, when that five-game series rolls around with Cleveland uh, at the end of the season, you hope that there's it, it's mathematically irrelevant, and then maybe uh, you can open it up to <laughs> having a, uh, you know, assuming you're not exposing you know players in the postseason risk, you know maybe you can settle a score then. Well, the l- next time that the White Sox and Cleveland play against each other again, it's going to be that five games over four days weekend span in late September. It's the last road series of the regular season for the 2021 White Sox. So maybe we will revisit this topic in late September. But the White Sox did win the series. Luckily, Jose Abreu wasn't seriously hurt. It's still BS, though, on what Cleveland did this weekend to Jose Abreu. Coming up this week, the Kansas City Royals visit Guarantee Rate Field. And can the White Sox get some revenge for their series loss last week as they lost three out of four against the Royals? Will Loy Jimenez and Luis Robert be in the White Sox lineup together for the first time in 2021 later this week? Well, we'll touch on those topics after this week's minor league report. And a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Meyer League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where Jake Berger and Micah Adolfo are getting breathers. Berger for a wrist issue, and Adolfo for soreness in his pectoral slash shoulder area. Knights manager Wes Helm says it's more of a tendonitis thing than anything structural, the product of guys who haven't played all that much the last three years, and who are in the midst of a second half of a real grind. We'll find out how true that is when we see the lineups of the first games of their series against Gwinnett. As for the Knights, Luis Robert is going through a more conservative rehab stint than Eloy Jimenez did, as he's not starting every game nor playing center field every time, but he's progressing. Jake Lamb is the one who looks closer to rejoining the White Sox. Jonathan Stever had a nice turn his last time out, as did Jimmy Lambert before the Sox recalled him. The bullpen is currently the huge issue in getting wins, with Zach Birdie struggling and Nick Turley coming off his worst outing of the season. They did add Kyle Crick from outside and Ryan Byrne and Matt Foster from above as of late, so perhaps Helms will have fewer headaches. Birmingham is the one affiliate that keeps chugging along despite changes to its roster. While the Barons lost Adolfo, they did gain Yolbert Sanchez, who is off to a strong start, batting 474 through his first 10 games. The rotation took a hit with the trade of Connor Pilkington, but it still has Cade McClure, who is doing his best pitching of the season right now, and Jason Billis turned into gem last time as well. And while Birmingham lost Bennett Souza to Charlotte, the bullpen gained Caleb Freeman from Winston-Salem. He's a fastball slider guy who recently showed the ability to hold the strike zone for weeks at a time, so he's earned the test. Winston-Salem is where the pitching dries up, because along with losing Freeman, innings eater Taylor Varnell was also promoted to Birmingham, and Bailey Horn was traded to the Cubs for Ryan Tapera. The Dash have lost 8 of their last 9, and they're allowing 8.9 runs per game over that stretch. In fact, the only game they won was by a score of 9-8. The offense is thin, but what prospects there are are hitting well enough. Yoelki Cespedes is showing signs of finding a groove, hitting 308 with a couple of walks and only 8 strikeouts over 29 plate appearances over the last series. And Lennon Sosa and Luis Curbelo spent July hovering around their season averages. Hats off to Alex Destino for hitting 5 homers over 6 games against Greensboro. The question is whether Canapolis will start promoting players upward, specifically Harvin Mendoza and Luis Mieses. They both have OPSs above 800 and strikeout rates in the teens with the Cannonballers. They struggled at Winston-Salem to start the season, but they've looked in control at low A. Jose Rodriguez also might be worth a shot, and Brian Ramos looks like he's climbing out of his biggest slump of the year, but they're at least young enough to where full seasons in Canapolis won't hurt their progress. Pitching-wise, I'm pleased to report that the Cannonballers finally have something representing a success story. Matthew Thompson's last two starts have been the best of any canny start of the season, allowing just one run and one walk over 11 innings, striking out 11. That's only been enough to lower his ERA to 6.47, but it's been a triumph both in terms of run prevention and peripherals. Andrew Dahlquist and Jared Kelly are still just both trying to get by. The White Sox-Arizona Complex team just started integrating college pitchers from its 2021 draft class into games, which should help matters for a team that started the season 6-16. They're scuffling offensively, but Masel Gonzalez broke out last week. The 12th-round pick out of Puerto Rico in the 2019 draft homered in three straight games and is carrying an OPS of 973 through 17 games, and that even includes the Platinum Sombrero two games ago. 
The Dominican Summer League White Sox are the only affiliate besides Birmingham with a winning record at 8-7, but most of the good news is on the pitching side. They're batting 180 as a team, which is the worst of any organization that isn't running a split squad. That'll do it for this week's Meyer League Report. For this week's series, Charlotte goes to Gwinnett, Birmingham hosts Mississippi, Winston-Salem travels to Asheville, and Kannapolis heads past the Triangle to play the Carolina Mudcats. The Kansas City Royals visit the Chicago White Sox for a Tuesday through Thursday series as the Royals are 45-59 and 59 for the season. And before the trade deadline, they traded away Jorge Soler, who had a monster series against the White Sox last week in Kansas City. So don't have to worry about Jorge Soler in this upcoming series. But they still got Whit Merrifield, which is a bit of a surprise for many folks outside of Kansas City, but it seems that the Royals are treating Merrifield that he is their Jose Abreu, and he's not going around. He's not going away anytime soon. Uh, so for Kansas City, no Jorge Soler. That should be a nice sight for White Sox pitchers, as again the White Sox lost three out of four against the Royals last week in Kansas City, and they are looking for revenge in these three games. Your pitching problems for this series as Monday, August second, the White Sox have the day off. So the first game is on Tuesday, August 3rd. This is a 7.10 p.m. Central time start. Chris Bubich is going to be on the mound for the Royals against Dylan Cease. Wednesday night, it is Carlos Hernandez, which for some odd reason, the White Sox could not figure out on how to hit him. He's going up against Lucas Giolito, which Lucas Giolito has been very sharp as of late. And Thursday night, this is a 7.10 p.m. Central time start. It's Daniel Lynch against Dallas Keuchel, which Keuchel is looking to bounce back after he faded pretty quickly in Saturday's loss against Cleveland. But I think the big question and big topic for this upcoming series, Jim, is, again, more anticipation of the White Sox getting closer to full strength. Aloy Jimenez, unfortunately, did not play in this weekend series against Cleveland, even though it was his first home series. Back with the White Sox in 2021, he accepted his Silver Slugger Award. The White Sox seemed to be optimistic that Jimenez could be in the lineup on Tuesday. But Luis Roberts, 20 days as far as his rehab in the minor leagues, is quickly uh, approaching uh, as far as the expiration of those 20 days. What do you think the odds are that in this series we could see both Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert in the lineup together? I wonder about Robert. Like it seems like Jimenez, they're you know getting him into shape, and they're not. Uh, I think if they're more pessimistic, they might have put him back on the injured list because they could do it retroactively and uh, maybe gain a player, bring back you know somebody who you know fill out the bench a little bit more. Uh, so I think he'll be back. I think with Robert, it's hard to tell just because he's, um, you know, he hasn't really had a smooth rehab stint or he's had some interruptions or he's taken some days off, hasn't played some complete games just because of some blowouts <laughs> because of Charlotte's pitching staff really struggling. Um, but yeah, you know, some games he's been pulled in the seventh inning, other games he's DH. So he hasn't had like the run of, you know, uninterrupted complete games, like three or four in a row in center field, the way you see like you know, most players rehabbing habits as they approach like a, a, a lengthy rehab stint, like way we're seeing like Jake Lamb uh, playing pretty much every day. So that's why I'd be surprised if Robert um, was there now. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be totally surprised because he didn't play for Charlotte on Sunday. So if they're bringing him up, maybe they just figured no unnecessary risks now. We'll just have him ready to go. Mm-hmm. But 
Seems like based on his playing time patterns, it still seems like a little bit soon. Okay. So I, I lost track on what would be his expiration date. I thought it was this week. Am I wrong? Let me see. Let me see when he started it. Because I figured he would come back for this series and he would definitely be ready when the White Sox head to Wrigley Field uh, this upcoming weekend for that first Crosstown series. No, he's in the second half of it. His first rehab game was July 21st. Oh, I am sorry, folks. So that means August 11th would be his final rehab day. Yes. Okay, and that's that series is in Minneapolis, which means he could jo- rejoin the White Sox just in time for the Field of Dreams game in Iowa. Or the White Sox can have him in uniform, not have him start that game, take the extra day because they have the Friday off as both teams need to logistically get themselves from Iowa back to Chicago. And then the White Sox play the New York Yankees that Saturday and Sunday. Okay, so maybe I have my bearings crossed here. Uh, that Luis Robert might be more likely to join the White Sox for the Yankees series than for this Royals series. But with the White Sox optioning Jimmy Lambert after Sunday's game, which, by the way, Jimmy Lambert threw well against Cleveland. I, I think that should be said. He, he impressed me, at least. Uh, is it Jake Lamb time? To join the White Sox? He seems like he's ready to go based on his strikeout rate coming down, playing every day at a bunch of positions. Uh, He's playing full games. Um, He seems like he's at the height of his powers, uh, such as they are. So that would seem to be the first move. And yeah, they could send down down Lambert. So I guess you just lose the ERT on the roster. All right. So that answers the question. Very unlikely we are going to see Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez in the lineup, but it would be nice to see Aloy Jimenez back in the lineup and be able to play this series as he was not able to play uh, over the weekend against Cleveland. Uh, as far as the White Sox taking their time uh, and giving certain starting pitchers days off, because we're not going to see Carlos Rodon in this series, we're not going to see Lance Lynn in this series. So I mentioned Jimmy Lambert getting a spot start to act as the opener. And then Ronaldo Lopez trailing behind him. Do you foresee that to be the pattern in this upcoming month, Jim? Because again, the White Sox do have a nine-game lead over Cleveland. It doesn't really look like Cleveland is going to add pressure to the White Sox to to make up that deficit in the standings. Are we going to see you know five starts from the White Sox starting pitchers, and then either during a day off or that sixth day? They're going to try to either have some type of bullpen game or use some type of opener like they did with Jimmy Lambert. I think you could see it a couple of times. I think Lopez being somebody who proved himself just as, as well as Lambert is throwing three innings uh, and you know convincing ones like that fastball was his old fastball. Like that's I think the so much has been made of Lopez's mentality and focus and mechanics and you know just everything else. And I think mechanics have something to do with it. But when it comes to like just knowing whether he's back or not, I think the fastball velocity is pretty much the easiest way to tell just because he's not going to be somebody who pitches backwards. He's not going to be somebody who throws sliders 50% of the time and a start to get by. 
it's going to be his fastball doing the driving. And so when he's throwing it, when he's topping out at 96 and sitting around 93, 94, that's pretty ordinary. Uh, but when he's throwing, you know, sitting 96 and hitting 98 and being able to kind of ride it up in the zone uh, the way he was, like finding that nice spot high and tight to right-handed hitters the way that Cleveland couldn't do it to Jose Abreu, that's the kind of Lopez who can succeed in the majors. Maybe you don't want him starting key games against good teams, but filling out a rotation, being a fourth, fifth starter, that's kind of the, the, the recipe that worked for him when he was adequate for the White Sox you know, early on after he was called up in this first full season with him. So that's, I think, the encouraging part about this. And even if Keuchel's struggling, we've, we've seen Carlos Rodon struggle, and, and I think uh, that Lambert-Lopez uh, joint appearance was designed to help give Rodon a turnoff or rearrange the rotation to where he misses the equivalent of a turn but still starts as much as everybody else. Um, that's, I, I think, what was designed for. Now, if Keuchel comes out, and starts the finale of the Kansas City game and looks like he did against uh, you know uh, against Cleveland, where he gives up three homers and the cutter just does loses power halfway through. I think it's a case where you can say, okay, Keuchel's now struggling in game, so let's give him a breather and let's uh, you know if, if the playing time is uh, you know appropriate, like you know Lopez hasn't been used two days in a row and Lambert's well timed, like I could see them doing it again just to buy themselves a game, especially if they have already like guaranteed that they're not in the middle of a losing streak that's going to uh, jeopardize their cushion. And I think that's a case where, you know, perhaps if they didn't win the first game of the series against Cleveland, they might have been uh, more, uh, you know, I, I'm more inclined to start uh, Dylan Cease as normal. But I think with uh, having secured one game and avoiding like the disaster scenario of being only five games up, that's, I think, where they, so they think, okay, let's gamble. You know, maybe it's only like a, a 35% chance will win this game with Lambert starting versus Cease, you know, who might give you a 50 to 55% chance starting uh, to win the game. But I like her odds based on the gains that we'll have for Rodon down the line. And I think that's going to be the calculus more or less, especially if Lopez shows what he's showing, which is, you know, good velocity again. Yeah. For the White Sox, their next nine games, three against the Royals, three against the Chicago Cubs and three against the Minnesota twins before the season started. We were thinking this could be a tough stretch for the White Sox. Uh, not the case now, presently. This should be, I'm not. it may not be easy nine games for the White Sox, but they should have a winning, a winning record in this upcoming nine-game stretch before they play against the Yankees and then a four-game series against Oakland. And then they head to Tampa Bay. And then for the first time since 2019, they go north of the border and head to Toronto for a four-game series. That stretch is going to be a bit more challenging than the next nine games for the White Sox. But I'm with you, Jim. This is an opportunity for them to gamble. This is an opportunity to try to get, you know, days off and to allow Carlos Rodon, who is throwing, you know, the most innings he's pitched since the 2018 season and try to buy some off days as well for Lance Lynn to, to save some bullets for the postseason. So I think it makes sense. And hopefully the White Sox bats uh, perform a lot better than they did last week against the Royals pitchers 
in Kansas City. Hopefully, uh, it is the reverse results, and we see the White Sox put up a lot of runs like we saw them put up on Friday and Saturday against Cleveland. Jim and I will be recapping as far as the White Sox Royals Series Thursday night on Sox Machine Live, so you guys have that to look forward to. But coming up next, you guys had a lot of questions for us, and we're going to answer them in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter. By following us on Twitter, we're at Sox Machine. But this week, we had so many questions from our Patreon supporters, which you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine. And for our Patreon supporters, thank you guys so much for your continued support. And uh, we have quite a few even bonus P.O. Sox questions. So stick around for those questions in your Patreon-only edition of this week's podcast. But Jim, let's go ahead and answer some questions. And the first one comes from Rodney. And Rodney wrote to us, Okay, gents, put the general manager hats on. Luis Robert is coming up soon, so please solve the roster puzzle. Robert goes up. Who goes down? Gavin Sheets has options left. Goodwin, not sure about options. Aloy, is he a 10-day injured list candidate? Jake Lamb, do you put him on outright waivers? And then what about Billy Hamilton next week? Based on today, I expect Billy's spot to be a revolving door of Charlotte Knights starting pitchers like Jimmy Lambert, Jonathan Stever, and Zach Birdie. But Hamilton's ability to steal bases and race down balls, Mercado's liner in the sixth inning on Saturday night, is a big key in my book. Thanks. So Jim, Roddy's got a lot of questions about the roster. How would you handle it in the weeks to come? Well, I, I think uh, the variable there, the biggest one is Eloy Jimenez, like his health, his availability. Um, you know, if he plays a game and then you know, the groin uh, flares up on him or whatever else hampers him, I could see him going on the injured list and then kind of all our permutations of the roster kind of moot because that's just a roster spot that can accommodate everybody at this point. So that one I'm not really concerned about. I think when it comes to, uh, like say, let's, let's say Jimenez is healthy. Let's assume that he's on the roster for the foreseeable future with no current uh, you know, issues. I think the White Sox are going to keep it simple. I think they're going to option Gavin Sheets down uh, and, and Jimmy Lambert down. I think Jimmy Lambert will go first to make room for Jake Lamb, and then Gavin Sheets would go down to make room for Luis Robert. That just seems, based on the season, based on how many guys have gotten injured, um, I, I think it makes the most sense to keep all options on hand in the fold for when rosters expand in September and when the postseason rolls around, uh, you know, who's still healthy for it. Uh, Lamb is not as exciting as Gavin Sheets. It's not as much fun to watch him because, you know, Sheets is just starting his career, whereas Lamb is hanging on at this point. But Sheets has dropped off over the last couple weeks. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of had to settle for opposite field singles, beating the shift because he's not quite getting the uh, success pulling the ball as he was earlier. And that's to be expected. I think we saw that with Jake Berger too, like initial success. And then the adjustments settle in and uh, the, the results are just kind of drying up. And I think sheets is a tough one to measure just looking at Malone because he never looks overmatched. Kind of like your mean Mercedes was sneaky about how bad he got just because 
the two strike swing allowed him to not strike out and not just head back to the dugout dejectedly, but just the contact got softer. Um, he wasn't hitting the ball with authority. You know, she just had some good, you know, hard line drives, but uh, they've been a little bit fewer as of late. So uh, he actually has a lower OPS over the last two weeks than Goodwin does. So I think the way he might struggle is sneakier than say watching, um, you know, the way the way Berger struck out or the way you know Jake Lamb might get into a strikeout binge and not look de- you know impressive defensively. I think you know you have to be on the lookout for how a guy with contact ability like Sheets just might dry up in a different way. So I, I think as much as people enjoy watching Sheets and, and and being interested in his at bats, and I'm one of them, I just think that it makes more sense for the numbers. Uh, and, and having all players available for having uh, Lamb come up, Sheets go down, and letting Sheets play every day in the uh, minors and play every day in maybe right field or most days in right field to get reps there, uh, I think that probably serves him better than playing, you know, once Robert's back, once Jimenez is back. Like, you know, Sheets w- might be lucky to play like twice a week. So uh, I think Lamb is more accustomed to bench life at this point, and that's probably a better way to do it. And then when September rolls around, you have the cushion to play with, guys to rest. That's probably when Sheets can come back and be a left-handed bench bat and get some starts, and uh, and, and you put a nice cap on a nice season. All right. So as a Sheets supporter, okay, because this has been a conversation the past 24 hours between Sheets and Brian Goodwin. They're both eight for 38 in their last 15 days. The reason why Goodwin has a higher OPS because he's walked four more times. Sheets does have the extra base advantage by one. He's got a double where Goodwin doesn't. But before Saturday and Sunday, Goodwin wasn't doing much. And boy, he's bad on defense. I understand why teams have been cutting him. He can't play center. He's got the athleticism to play center. He moves well. He takes terrible routes. And what the heck happened in right field over the weekend? The the ball hitting him mm-hmm. square in the glove. And I am back and forth on this. You know, he's a good bench bat. Brian Goodwin is a good bench bat. Jake Lamb is a good bench bat. But if the White Sox are close to full strength, Adam Engel's got to start every day in right field. Yeah, you hope that makes that moot. You hope Angle's healthy enough to where just uh, you're looking for somebody who compliments him, you know, starts maybe one or two games a week in relief of Angle, but you're hoping at that point that Angle's healthy enough to carry the load. I mean, Goodwin joined the White Sox in early June, and he's got negative four defensive runs saved in center field. Yeah. And he's got negative three defensive runs saved in right field. Yeah, I'd rather see Larry in center. That's and that's not great. <laughs> it's it's fine. Yeah, he's fine. I mean, Lurie's fine yeah. in center field. He's better in center field than he's at second base. <laughs> that just makes him come to the plate then, and that's where and the, that's where the problem therein is. lies. The yeah, rope. exactly. So I, I'm glad that Brian Goodwin had that moment and he flipped that bat to the moon uh, with the walk off home run and he's hit home runs in back to back days. He's gonna have to hit against righties. He's gonna have to be more consistent against righties because. Again, we, we've been talking about this since the All-Star break. The left-handed White Sox batters, were not they're not doing a very good job of providing consistent results against righties since the All-Star break. They just haven't, and I get it. People are quoting Goodwin's numbers against righties this year. Yes, he was very good in June and the first couple of weeks in July before the All-Star break, but before Saturday and Sunday, he was definitely in a slump. And when you're not hitting and you're playing terrible outfield defense— I can't bring up very good reasons why you should be getting a lot of playing time. 
Uh, and I think moving forward, Rodney, I, I need to see Adam Engel in right field. When Luis Robert is healthy, it should be Robert in center field and Engel in right field. Yeah, Goodwin can spell Engel from time to time, but I think Adam Engel is proving enough at least in this season, Jim, that he can kind of hold his own against righties because I get it. Hey, you want the lefties Mm -hmm. in, but look at the stats guys. As far as the last couple of weeks, the lefties are not hitting at all. And that's kind of complicated matters. And another reason why before this weekend, the white Sox scored 17 runs in an eight game span. Um, But again, we're, we're talking about the 25th and 26 guys on the bench. Uh, as far as the roster. So if everyone's cool with Jake Lamb and Brian Goodwin just being bench guys at the moment, and they're just happy as a clam to be on the 26-man roster, cool. But if we're if we're going to be advocating for starting time, if we're going to be advocating for at-bats, uh, I, I don't know if Brian Goodwin should be starting every day in right field. No, Engel's got a 932 OPS against righties this year. Yeah, he's been good. And yeah, so, it doesn't look fluky. Yeah, no, just more of a matter of just not wanting to push him past his breaking points when it comes to his legs. So, but he seems like he's running fine. He's running aggressively down the line, beating plays out, stealing bases. So I'm hoping that means that he's ready to go like play all three games in a series. Yeah, so that would make Goodwin the fourth outfielder. I don't know defensively if the White Sox still want Jake Lamb in the outfield. Maybe Jake Lamb maybe get some starts at first base or his natural position, third base, which we haven't seen. Uh, I don't, have we seen Lamb at third base this season? I think once or twice. It hasn't been often, which has been surprising to me. And then Billy Hamilton. I mean, I don't think we're to see Hamilton for the rest of the month. I've got a sneaky suspicion that he's going to be healthy on September 1st. But it raises the question then, because you only have two roster spots you expand to from 26 to 28. Do you carry that third catcher that we talked about earlier in the show? And then Hamilton is the 28th guy and not Gavin Sheets? I think it depends on, you know, I think with Hamilton, you know, when he, if he has an oblique injury that's preventing him from swinging one side of the plate, I think that's significant enough to where uh, it's not necessarily roster shenanigans to have him out for a few weeks. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, I think when September rolls around, uh, yeah, I think October, I think Hamilton makes more sense for an October roster. For September, Still think it makes more sense maybe to just have Sheets there for left-handed bench power and then save Hamilton, make sure he's healthy for the whole pinch running thing in October. But isn't the hope that Jake Lamb would serve as that left-handed bench power? Yeah, it could be. But, you know, we'll see who's healthy and available. But, I mean, the, the good news is Charlotte's season runs deep into September. Yeah, they expanded year, so. the, the season. Yeah, so... You know, he might be playing, you know, Gavin Sheets just might be playing in Charlotte because it's a way for him to play every day. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit odd. With Cesar Hernandez in the fold, we're not going to be talking about who's starting at second base. It's going to be who is this, uh, how is the outfield configuration going to be? How is, you know, who's going to be in right field when Luis Robert is healthy and playing in center field every single day? And you'll still like to have Andrew Vaughn's bat in the lineup, so he's in left field. And... 
I guess people can, you know, stump for a platoon, but I don't really look at it as a platoon. I look at it as Adam Engel should start every day in right field unless he reports that he needs a day off because of his legs or if Tony Russa just gets a feel of the game and the feel of the situation with Engel saying, I'm going to give you a day off. I'm going to put Goodwin in right field. But I think playing time is going to be at a limited Rodney, if that makes sense for Lamb and Goodwin. And that will raise questions of, well, why isn't Sheets up? But as Jim mentioned, if there's just not going to be a lot of at-bats in a week, have the veterans like Lamb and Goodwin serve those roles on the bench while Sheets continues to develop in Charlotte. And that does make sense. And I would like to see Sheets still get a little bit of a more run because I do buy into his power. Uh, and he is someone I think that can deliver as far as left-handed power for the White Sox, which is what they need. But I have gone through the stages of grief and I am in acceptance mode. And Jim is right. Sheets is going to get optioned when more players get healthy. And you're going to have a bench of Jake Lamb and Brian Goodwin getting spot starts, not a lot of starts. And in September, who knows on how they're going to want to handle those two extra guys that are added on to the roster. But Rodney, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Daniel and Daniels wrote to us, Jim, just kind of a fun speculative question to mix it up. We all know there have been eras of baseball defined by different things going on. The dead ball era, expansion, steroids, the current home run era, era. What do you think will be the next era and what could it be defined by? Well, I think, you know, right now there's like a larger you could call it analytic era, just a lot of sea changes in the game based on, um, you know, what, how, how, uh, front offices are figuring out, uh, getting players to succeed, how pitching coaches, pitching labs are helping pitchers develop, uh, the whole launch angle, you know, aspect of countering that, uh, uh, how pitchers are getting tougher with maximizing the value of an at bat. So I think there's a larger movement, you know, changing the way the game is played. And so you could call it the analytic era. I think if you're looking for something more specific, I might say right now, or, uh, it's kind of like a strikeout era or an era of low contact, uh, you know, where strikeouts are outnumbering hits by a large percentage, uh, an unprecedented percentage. And so much so that they're looking at instituting rule changes, whether it's banning shifts, whether it's, um, you know, putting in a pitch clock to uh, you know, limit how much time pitchers have to recover and, and whether pitchers have to change their strategies of maxing out every pitch to make it, to give hitters a better chance. But I think that's right now kind of the dominant storyline in what baseball is trying to solve, putting more balls into play. So I think that's really my, uh, I guess what era I would consider it now or, or, you know, should there be some rule changes implemented I think that would be the next era then is just the era of greater change, um, you know, greater change in the way the game's played. So maybe some COVID era changes like double headers and such uh, being carried over beyond the pandemic into uh, a new era. Just you know, Rob Manfred being a little bit more um, heavy handed in just how he uh, tries to implement uh pace of game and uh, kind of game being played. So I think that's where we're looking at right now is just, you know, the, the rule changes in the minor leagues matriculating up to the major leagues in one form or another to try to get more balls in play and maximize just what fielders are doing. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor and Mark wrote to us, how hard should the White Sox try to win home field advantage for the postseason? 
I don't think it's worth gassing players for just like the, you get in a situation like 2008 where you're having to win uh, three games in three different cities uh, to get to the uh, postseason and just having none of your pitchers lined up having, you know, you're, you're, you know, having no Carlos Quinton, having just a whole bunch of uh, key players not available or not available with the rest you'd want them to. So if you're looking at like needing to win like five games in a row to win uh, or have a shot at the home field advantage, that's a case where now it's probably not worth airing it out for. But I think it's worth pursuing, you know, with to a reasonable degree. And I think, uh, you know, having two closers helps because if you have Kimbrell uh, there and Hendricks there, and you don't have to worry about like a guy saving four games in a row because uh, they'll be able to alternate, I think, at that point down the stretch. So you don't have to worry about gassing your best reliever the way we've seen, like, you know, I, I'm thinking the Indians Cubs series with, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Miller looking really worn out and Chapman at the end looking <laughs> like he'd been figured out. If you're looking to avoid that, I think that's where Kimbrell adds value and saving some pitches for Hendricks. Also, the thing that could help them is having Luis Robert back, you know, knock on wood, you know, Robert back, Jimenez back, Grandal back. And they might be at the stage where they could use all possible reps going into the postseason. Like they might not need rest. They might need the opposite. <laughs> Getting as many at-bats as possible, starts as possible just to get in the groove and be at their best or near their best when October rolls around. So that might be something that incidentally helps them pursue a home field advantage. But if you have guys that are banged up, guys that need to get off their feet and you have the White Sox need to like make up two games and over the last five, that just might not be worth, you know, that might be like robbing Peter to pay Paul and ultimately just, you might have the home field advantage, but you might not have the pitchers you want, or they might be on weird rest schedules, or uh, you just might have some guys who just, you know, like Eloy Jimenez in the wild card series last year that just maybe aren't able to answer the bell, even though they want to be there. I'm looking at the standings right now in the American League, and I think you're right. It's not worth gassing out your roster to get home field advantage. But Tampa Bay is 30 and 22 away from Tropicana. Boston is 30 and 22 away from Fenway. The Yankees are 29 and 25 away from the Bronx and Toronto. They play a lot of away games. So it's really hard to look at their home and away splits as they just got back home. Houston's 30 and 22 away from home. Oakland is 30 and 23. So Houston, Oakland, Tampa, Boston, those four teams are pretty strong away from home. The White Sox are 25 and 26. And I I think the difference between home and away for the White Sox mostly is the offense. They're like 117 weighted runs created plus offensively at home and they're 100, their league average away from home. And Houston for example, doesn't have those type of splits. Their offense is pretty consistent whether they're heading at home or away. So I do think, though, Jim, at least for the divisional series, it would benefit if the White Sox got either the number one or the number two seed so they at least get three of the home uh, of the five home games. I think that would give them a better chance of moving on into the championship series. But to come full circle in this podcast, this is where when you acquire someone like Craig Kimbrell, it helps out as far as your your performance, especially the run prevention side, uh, away from home. But it, it's pretty clear the White Sox are one of the best home teams. I think they have, yeah, they have the best home record in the American League in 2021. They just play better at home. 
and that's often the case. But looking at the other playoff contenders right now, those teams are much stronger on the road than the White Sox. I'm also looking at the record of uh, uh, White Sox against uh, uh, teams better than 500, and they are lagging behind that as well. So it might not matter. <laughs> they just might have to confront one demon or another. So Yeah, it may not matter. Yeah, and you look at Houston, right? Yeah, Houston's 42-25 and 25 against teams above 500. Yeah, Oakland is comparable. Oakland is worse against teams with winning records, so... That ought to right. be fascinating when they play. Yeah, Oakland's got to start sweating, though. They're going to have some teams catching up on them. The Yankees are two and a half games back of Oakland, the wild card. Toronto's three and a half games back. Seattle's three and a half games back. They're going to have to fend off some pretty strong teams. And for the White Sox, they're going to face some teams above 500 in the middle of the month in August. As I mentioned, the Yankees... Oakland, Tampa, and Toronto series that those are consecutive series. And then they're followed up by teams that are definitely not above 500, uh, like the, the Royals and the Cubs and the twins. So the white Sox are probably not going to play as many games above 500 opponents. So I don't know like how strong of a stat that is, but it is eye opening when you see Houston is already 42 and 25 against teams above 500 Tampa's 36 and 29 against teams above 500. And even Boston has a winning record as well against opponents above 500. Those teams have played well against really good teams this season where the White Sox are 22 and 26 against teams above 500. So if you just look at the standing splits, it would, you know, the, maybe the simple answer is it would benefit the White Sox if they had the home field advantage, at least for the first series. But you make good points, Jim. You don't want to gas yourself out in September trying so hard to get home field advantage. Maybe get the number one seed, and then your team is not at 100% ready to go for the American League Divisional Series. And then you get knocked out. And the White Sox do have the easiest strength of schedule remaining in the league from here on out. Um, The Astros are one hundredth of a percentage point (laughs) (laughs) ahead of them. So, like, yeah, the Astros have it pretty easy as well. It does seem like uh, now Fangraphs uh, rounds up to 100% for the White Sox winning the division, 99.6. It still has Houston, though, as the team most likely to have the best record in the American League. Let me check. Yes. Yeah. And 97 to 94. And the White Sox are like number three behind Tampa. They're now number two. Okay. So it's Astros at 97, White Sox 94, Red Sox at uh, 93.8, Rays at 93.6. Yeah, that race is going to get tight in the American League East, especially with the Rays sweeping the Red Sox in Tampa over the weekend. I, I could see that. I, I, th- I could see the Astros getting the number one seed. I could see the White Sox being the number two seed and facing the winner of the American League East in the American in the uh, ALDS, the American League Divisional Series. I, I could definitely see that. But you are right, Jim. They should not gas themselves out in September, trying so hard to get home field advantage, and then they're not ready or they're not at full strength for the postseason. That they they wouldn't be taking advantage of the opportunity where they're going to probably win the American League Central by ten plus games. Mm-hmm. But Mark, thank you so much for your question, and I'm sure it'll be a topic of discussion a month from now, uh, especially when it becomes more clear that on just when the White Sox should win the American League Central. Uh, They haven't won it like Bob Nightingale has announced on Twitter. (laughs) But we still got some ways to go. But thanks so much for your question, Mark. Uh, Rob wrote to us, Rob Liedemann, and Rob wrote to us, I think after the trades, 
I'm going to start believing this team could win it all. I had them as a playoff flameout before that, and they're not the favorite, but there's something about this team that makes me think, yeah, they could pull this off. Am I crazy, or do you all think it's time to believe? No, I don't think you're crazy. Uh, and I think this is a good button to put on the episode, at least for the uh, non-Patreon supporters. But yeah, it, it's it kind of comes down to you know when we talked about the trade deadline, what they had to do. Uh, second base and bullpen. You know, Rick Hahn did both. And Rick Hahn had the best possible addition to the bullpen, especially. So that's a case where you know maybe Adam Frazier might have been better at second than uh, Cesar Hernandez, but not by that much, you know, not uh, to the degree that Kimbrell improves uh, the bullpen over even, say, like Ryan Tapera. So when you have uh, Hernandez there and you have uh, Kimbrell anchoring the bullpen with Hendricks and you free up Kopech to either be a good multi-inning guy or you make, you know, should he have like some second half of the year struggles just because this is kind of new for him, the length of the season, the major league stress, the new roles, like, at least you know, he can afford to struggle in peace. Like there, you know, you can elevate Tapera. Uh, you can maybe elevate Lopez if he keeps pitching the way he is. But you can spare him some time to regroup and get better. Same thing with Crochet if he hits any bumps based on him being a rookie. Like there are ways to work around uh, the struggles of the rookies now. So now it all comes down to just the the players we talked about: Robert Grandal, Jimenez, just being healthy and looking the way they can. I think that's just the missing piece for whether the White Sox are favorites, Leo, or whether they're like true on paper rivals to the Astros. I mean, when the playoffs happen, anything can happen. So you can't really say like they have no chance, but we're talking about on paper because that's all we can talk about. And I think that's really, you know, at least getting like two of those three guys back, Robert Jimenez, Grandal, and having everybody else, you know, like not missing any other pieces besides them. I think that's uh, going to be ultimately what decides just how enthusiastic fans are. But for the checklist going into the trade deadline, I think Han did what he could. Yeah, the more I think about it, especially after they added Craig Kimbrell, because when they made the trades for Cesar Hernandez and Ryan Tapera, I thought at the time Rick Han addressed the needs. And that's good for the White Sox. They got someone who's better at second base and at least at the time, I thought Tapera could help solidify things in the bullpen. Obviously, it's a terrible first impression for Ryan Tapera after this weekend, but I'm still hopeful he will figure things out uh, and he will pitch better for the White Sox for the rest of this season. And then they added Kimbrell, and especially with Houston in their moves to fortify their bullpen, they got two closers, Kendall Graveman from Seattle and Yimmy Garcia from Miami. I thought, all right, the White Sox have successfully countered. Their bullpen, especially in the 8th and ninth inning, is going to be stronger than whatever Houston throws out there. And if we're going to have this collision course of Houston and the White Sox facing each other in the American League Championship Series, I feel a lot better about this series now, uh, especially if the White Sox can get to full strength. And the Astros won 5 out of 7 against the White Sox, also not at full strength. They didn't have Alex Bregman for those games. Uh, so the Astros can say the same thing where I know the common excuse for the White Sox for their poor play against Houston is, hey, we weren't healthy. And Houston can say, we weren't fully healthy either. Uh, so I, I do think it is a collision course right now between those two teams. And I believe that the White Sox, I have more confidence that the White Sox will fare better against the Astros after acquiring Craig Kimbrell than I did before Kimbrell. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I think Kimbrel is the guy who allows Han to sleep better at night. Like knowing he did what he could. And, you know, maybe he won't get the luck injury-wise with Grandal and Jimenez and Robert and whoever else is banged up, like being available. But when it came to like just who could he add that could help the most? Like if he stopped at Tapera and then didn't add Kimbrel and Kimbrel went elsewhere, I think he just might have been like, should have done it, should have done it, should have done it. Like especially, you know, should have come to like the sixth and seventh innings of uh, postseason games when you can go to a guy like Kimbrel uh, in a do or die situation. Like I think, you know, he would have been kicking himself. So I think he did what he could and the rest is up to uh, training staff and, you know, the coaching staff and, you know, making uh, smart calls for uh, what kind of workload guys can take on and then just their bodies themselves. And luck. Yep. That's, yeah, that's what I mean by bodies. Just like <laughs> injury luck. But yeah, I, uh, I would not schedule vacations in late October, Rob, if you believe that the White Sox are going to be a team that's going to make it to the championship series and to the World Series. I have, a, I have a feeling that this season, this 2021 season, is going to creep into November where we're going to have some World Series games during, in the, uh, the first couple of days in the month of November. But yeah, I think for White Sox fans, Jim and I included, we feel a lot more confident in this team, especially after the moves uh, before the trade deadline that we did last week. At least I do, Jim. I like the White Sox chances of winning a playoff series or two more than I did last week. I'll agree to that. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to address in the upcoming episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, the best way for them to get answered is supporting us on patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the podcast and website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, like the Sox Machine ball caps, they get the first opportunity to purchase that new Sox Machine swag. And we have monthly plans starting at just $2 a month. So if you enjoy our work and want to help support us, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine and sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire podcast network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.